This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Right. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I think in, in politics, particularly as we're coming towards an election, parties are trying to find a difference between them. And at the moment, the question that is dominating education in Parliament is... Do our teachers, should our teachers be qualified to teach? And I think that leads us nicely into this session, which is about the future of face-to-face teaching. And if I can, um, I would... Uh, uh, when we come to talk about that, I would like particularly the teachers who are on the platform to address that, because I've always felt, my, this is my statement to kick us off, the teachers are much more than simply imparters of knowledge. So um, can, can I ask if we can... Where's, you're here next? Yeah, I've got this, the list. Can I ask the teachers who are on the platform first, particularly Chris, I think, first, because I think you alluded to this in what you had to say, and perhaps to Sean to, to give us a comment from the uh, NEHT. Over to you, Chris. Well, that's absolutely true. And as I said, I think the most important thing I get to do every day is to influence a child's life. And it sounds a very grand thing, but that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're not only imparting knowledge, we're making a difference. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I teach programming, and one student had had a really bad day, program wasn't working, and he just burst into tears and put his head down on the desk. I was there, I spoke him round the next lesson, he was in, he was programming again, he stuck with it, and I was there to support him. And I I just can't see how having an online conversation can be the same as that day-to-day relationship that I have with students. You also heard me speak very passionately about our students who um, are disadvantaged in some way. It may be in some small way, it may be in a more major way. And trying to present them with an opportunity for learning. And the MOOC, which I've been involved with uh, from the start with Cambridge Assessment, is a a great leveller because not only can students learn, but parents can learn as well. And that's great. The kids can go home if they've got access to the internet. They can show what they're doing uh, with their parents. The parents can get involved as well. And so we actually extend the learning. And sometimes at um, parents' evenings, I actually have parents talk to me about what their students or their children are actually learning in class, which I think is fantastic. So I, it's, as a job, I'm really passionate about it. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes disappointed that I didn't go down the acting route, but hey, I'm here. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Right. Um, we've got two very short presentations before we go into the kind of seminar session. So I'm going to ask um, uh, Sean to come... Uh, to, to speak to us from the NHT, and then I will come to Nick afterwards. Okay. Thank you. Um, it was nice to walk down memory lane when uh, David referred to uh, Alf Tupper before, because Alf Tupper actually inspired me to dabble in track and field uh, as a child, and. Uh, still do actually believe it or not so appearances can be deceptive um on the theme of memory lane um i was reflecting on the late 70s mid to late 70s when i did my pgc we did educational theory which seemed to be very very disconnected from the reality of uh tackling uh, inner city youth in london 
Um, but one thing did stick, and it was the, the radical de-schoolers. Some of you may be familiar with Ivan Illich and uh, Paolo Freire and their work. And what they actually did was to really challenge this relationship between teaching and learning. And there's an implication that actually true learning implies no teaching. I seem to remember that quote from, uh, from some of their works. Um, but learning took place where there were learning networks and learning exchanges where people define what they wanted to learn, find someone who could help it with them. Perhaps not visioning the, the internet in, in 1978 and the way that's developed. There's a bit of the romantic in me, but it's clung to that idea. And um, I was at a libertarian event recently talking about WikiLeaks, and someone made the point that uh, truth isn't something we're given. Truth is something we discover for ourselves. And perhaps if education, education is true education when we experience it as a truth. So there's a lot in what we've heard today, but I'm very much attracted to, and I think an awful lot of teachers are attracted to as well, as a vision. But I think it's a long-term vision, and I'd like just to present a few reasons why I think that's the case. Um, we all know that somewhat clichéd uh, joke now, the punchline of which goes something along the lines of, well, I wouldn't start from here. But I think we do need to start from here, and I think we need to, our starting point is to look at the, the current state of play of what's sometimes called educational, uh, sorry, technology-assisted learning. Very interesting piece recently, Peter Twining, talking about fears that, um, two things really, one, but the uptake and the exploitation of, of technology-assisted learning is very, very patchy. Um, the, there's a big gap, I think, between the schools that are really, really good at it and the schools that are barely scratching the surface. And this has been reflected also in the Educational Technology Action Group that's been set up. Um, I'd commend you to look at uh, MJ Online and Stephen Heppel's comments about the brief given to them by uh, Michael Gove and um, uh, Mr. Hancock. I forget forgotten his first name, Matthew Hancock. Um, actually confessing that they've been a bit too hands-off in terms of technology and technology-assisted learning and so on. We're starting at a place where it's not consistently applied and we need to get to a stage where there's consistency there. Some of you remember the Slicked project um, some 10 years or so, strategic leadership in ICT in schools. And I remember the consultant in the school I was working at at the time saying there are seven stages of interact. Activity, And most schools get to four, which is where they use interactive whiteboards, rather like uh, a sophisticated overhead projector. And I think probably, if we look at it globally, we're probably at something like stage four now in terms of technology-assisted learning. So if we're going to move towards the sort of visions we've heard today, then we need to start from that place and get that consistency there. And there are all sorts of issues there about schools having common lines and um, bring your own technology, um, the access to technology point we've heard before, and so on. I think second point is that children need to learn to learn. Yes, it is true they will learn by themselves, um, but I think we can't escape the, the attainment gap which is there. Once we move beyond London, there is a huge class-based attainment gap in this country, and we need to address that as well as part of this, not separately, but as part of it. It's inextricably linked. Um, children need to learn to learn. They need powerful knowledge. If those familiar with Michael Young's work will we'll, we'll, we'll get that particular reference. We need to make sure that they're learning the right things. Learning needs a framework, it needs a structure, it needs teachers. 
as a, as someone who works for a trade union, someone's a lifelong trade unionist, um, you might expect me to be a little luddite about this, and uh, and that I echo Pat's comments about the debate about unqualified teachers at the moment. This is an opportunity for reskilling and upskilling teachers, and we need to seize that opportunity as well. And that's a longer-term vision. It's a longer-term project. I think we can't escape from the fact that schools work in the long shadow of accountability at the moment. What we're talking about needs people to take risks. I'm a bit hesitant about the whole notion of experiments and laboratories where we're talking about children's education and life chances. But our current system, I think, uh, encourages schools to be risk-averse, not to be risk-takers, and that needs to be addressed as well if we're going to move towards the visions that we've, we've heard today. And the last point I would make, we hear a lot about 21st century skills, uh, 21st century teaching, learning, and so on. Um, we need to think about assessments. We have basically a 19th century, perhaps not even a 19th century, uh, concept of, of assessment at the moment, where herding young people into sweaty gyms in mid-June seems about the best way of assessing teaching and learning. We can't have 21st century skills accompanied by that outmoded concept of assessment, and we need to be looking at ways in which online assessment is part of the battery of assessment that teachers can use. I'll stop at that point. Thank you. Uh, our final, our final um, presentation, short presentation, is from uh, Nick Jones, who is the principal of Twickenham Academy. And I've particularly today been waiting to hear from Nick because he has to deliver this at the chalk face. So we can hear from Nick. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. I'm going to, I was impressed by David. I think he compressed his lifetime down into about 15 minutes. Uh, I'm going to do about four years into about five minutes. I don't know whether that's possible. 14 slides. So I did the discipline. I need maybe a sentence or two at, um, on, on each slide. Um, I think our story at Twickenham Academy is one of the most exciting school journeys that there's been. And, you know, a few people in the audience, one or two have been up to me and said, I've been to your school, so there's others you can speak to during the morning. Um, I'm Nick Jones, the principal. This is me. If you're a visual learner, this is my bio in pics. Um, so there's something to talk about at lunch if you'd like to. Um, for once, the, the press got it right, I think, and there are still schools out there that are trying to make a step change in education, aren't there? Uh, trying to do things differently and encompass many of the things that uh, have been talked about this morning. Um, the motivation for me was going over to a group of schools in, in Sweden because Twickenham Academy is one of the first uh, small group of schools sponsored by an overseas organisation, a company called Kunskapskolen, a Swedish education group. And I went to their schools and I saw a group of learners who were capable, articulate and autonomous. And I wanted that for our children so that we could compete on the world stage, because if we don't, they won't. Um, and the model is based around um, a, a rather an old-fashioned term now called personalised learning. Um, and what we do is based around our values. Um, and I always pick out, if you went to Twickenham and, and talked to the students, um, if you talked to my head boy, you'd found that in his speech to get the job, he quoted me on the final one of these, 
Um, and, and I think he was very astute because I think I took on a school which was full of very passive learners, really, as many of our schools were. And the one thing I keep saying to my students is they need to be active participants in their learning to change their lives, to move their lives forward. So our values are really important to us. The school we took on was, was not untypical of many in the UK, rather down at heel, um, 40 languages spoken at home, um, supporting students from the very deprived areas of Hounslow and from the very leafy areas of Richmond. Um, might have been called a, a bog-standard English comprehensive school. Um, but what of our model? What of our pedagogy? Well, it tries to put students at the heart of what we do. Students who are able to set goals for themselves. And I think that's been said this morning by a number of the speakers. So how do they do that in my five minutes? How do I squeeze that story in? Well, this is our curriculum diagram because I start with what we teach. Um, and I'll say a little bit about how we want our students to learn. But on the left of our um, curriculum diagram, we've divided the subjects of maths, English, science, ICT and modern languages into 40 steps. We've just taken the, taken the learning and, in effect, modularised it. And it's really simple. Students may not start on step one where they join us, and they may move at a different rate or pace through those 40 steps, depending on their interests, their capability, etc. So we have this opportunity to try and build a more stage, not age, model of learning. Um, but I'm a big fan of 21st century skills, and you need a vehicle for that as well. So in the humanities, product design, drama and art and design, we have a thematic project-based approach to learning, where we can ask some of those big questions, where we can develop growing independence in, in our young people, and, and where they do work together with the same age group of students, where they might not in the stepped curriculum. But um, students always need, I was, I'm, I'm going to go back and call them young grannies, I think. Um, they need young grannies, so we have a learning conversation with every student every week because it's really important that they talk about their learning, and our tutorial programme does that. Our tutors may not know everything about every subject, but I'm going to go back and uh, I'm going to get talk about just praising them and saying they're doing well, and, and that is a really important part of what we do. And they don't just go to lessons. Um, they might go to a lecture, a workshop, a seminar, a lab session, um, a communication session. So we have a repertoire of, of experiences that they hopefully enjoy as they, they work through their, their week. And in some of those, they choose the learning for themselves. And sometimes they'll choose the type of session in collaboration with their teachers. And I don't think we could do this if we didn't have um, some online resources. So we do have what we call a learning portal. Um, and on the learning portal, you'll see our step curriculum. So this is the first step in science. If you look across the top there, you can see the 40 steps. 
So any student can set their goals. They can come in at year seven and say, I want to get to step 40, which will give them the learning resources to be able to get an A-star at GCSE if they so desire. Uh, the, the 40 steps are divided up into blocks of five, and each fifth step we have a testing or an assessment opportunity, um, which sometimes involves the use of IT, not just pieces of paper. Um, and the same is true. We have all of our resources available online, so we have our thematic program there. Um, and as you'll see, here's the very first step. And Sugata, we ask them a question, who am I? Um, and there's lots of questions and challenges as they, walk th as they work through the thematic programs that are on offer. And they evaluate them and we change them as, they, as, as all of this develops and grows. Um, we were lucky this year that we managed to introduce a one-to-one -one program. So we've got some Microsoft Surface in, in, in many hundreds across the, um, across the academy. And that certainly helped to change the landscape within, within our school, I think. And uh, those who've been in it will, will have seen that. Um, but we also have a slightly different physical landscape. Um, and we've, we've got a school which is designed around our pedagogy. So if you want to have workshops, seminars, lab sessions, etc., you need spaces to deliver them all in. And we have a school like that. Um, and a very lovely school it is. So if schools are um, a thing of the past, I've just helped to waste £20 million of taxpayers' money. Um, the... It is a beautiful, iconic building, but it, everything in it has a meaning. So it's a triangular building, and in each point, each of the three points of our triangle, we've got three mini schools, each with its own college principal and structure to support young people in a more human-scale environment. My final slide, this was the slide I, I created the very first time I came back from Sweden about, um, I don't know, must be nearly 10 years ago now. Um, and, and it's what I call the virtuous circle. And, and starting where our logo is, is what we do uh, to make our school not a traditional school, but a learning school's trust school. Um, all of those things I've just talked about, I think, enable our young people to move from being more dependent learners uh, to more autonomous learners, more capable of directing their own learning. And that, in turn, enables our teachers to, to work and operate in a different way um, and so it goes it's been a wonderfully exciting journey I hope I've made some sense of it in my five minutes um, and um, you are most welcome to come and see it in action as many people have through whole education and, and, and stuff like that thank you right, uh it was interesting that Nick dared to utter the words modular learning, um, part of the government's banned words in education well, now. So it's, it's, it's good to be in a forum where we dare utter educational treason, isn't it? Um, right, this session is now yours. We will be putting up some uh, comments that have come in from outside to, to, to prompt you or if we dry up in the hall. If you want to speak, make a statement, ask a question, please put your hand up, say who you are, and that goes for the people on the panel. Short statements, short questions, short answers, if there's any answers, and if people overrun, I will cut you off. So, right, who wants to go first? The lady in light blue here. 
Thank you very much. Mary Webb from King's College London. Um, one of the things I do is um, train teachers. And I wanted to pick up on one of the themes that's come through for me from all your interesting presentations. And that is the importance of collaborative learning and assessing during that collaborative learning, ideally. And I think there's, there's three possible ways that this might be achieved. Um, and I think these might not be mutually exclusive, but I think I have some views as to which is going to be most productive in the short term, at least. Um, one is um, using technology. And I think uh, one way forward on that is being possibly developed through the OECD PISA program, where they're developing collaborative um, problem-solving assessment in science education. Um, I think it's quite limited because it's difficult to make this really authentic, and they're using intelligent agents which um, the students will interact with. So I think there's questions over validity, but it does seem to me to be one interesting way forward. Another possibility, um, which I don't think we're terribly good at in the UK, is to actually trust the teachers. Um, teachers, as we know from what um, Christine was saying, and from many other teachers, are um, very capable and understand what their students are learning. So we could enable the teachers and empower the teachers to make those assessments. The third thing we could do is, as these students become more autonomous, and we've heard quite a lot about that today, is actually look at enabling their self-assessment, their peer assessment, and then presenting their evidence through e-portfolios. I would like to hear other people's views from various parts of the panel on this. Very interested in Helen's comments on that. Um, and that's a discussion I think we need to take forward. Thank you. Okay. Anyone want to comment on that? Right. There's two gentlemen at the back. And then we'll come to you next. Uh, yeah. Oh, hello. Um, Daniel Thomas, I work at CCSS. Uh, it's a sixth form college in Cambridge. Um, and this year I'm part of a team who are offering... Uh, subjects online to potential feeder schools who wouldn't necessarily have access to them. So I, I teach a group of young people um, some statistics and some AS maths, and they're in schools where they wouldn't normally have access to those courses. Um, and it's this, this recurrent theme of assessment that I think is really interesting. Um, and it does seem to me we're talking about the subject content becoming commodified and available online, but there is still this role of assessment. Um, there, are, there are fantastic resources available online uh, by people who have fantastic subject knowledge, but they don't know the people in my classroom in the same way that I do. Um, it's interesting you mention this whole debate about whether we need qualified teachers. Um, it's not the subject knowledge that makes a good teacher. Uh, I think this use of the cloud is a fantastic opportunity for a skilling of teachers, a reskilling and upskilling, so that we can work to assess the people in our room. We can work to support the people in our room because that is where the teacher is valuable. It's not just in the transmission of knowledge. Um, so I think schools in the cloud is, is a 
fantastic opportunity for us to get back to what qualified teachers want to do, relate to the people in that room and spur on them and their learning experience. I don't want to transmit knowledge. I want to encourage people to learn how to learn. That's why I'm a teacher. Okay, thank you. Would you pass the mic to the guy behind you? Thanks a lot. Um, my name is David Price. I'm the guy who wrote the book that's you've got the flyer in your pack. It's available on Amazon. I'm sure you'll all want to get it. Um, I, I just wanted to say that I think the, the, we're in danger of setting up a kind of false opposition here. And what's interesting is that although this is ostensibly an event about the use of technology, I think what's come through in almost everybody's presentation is that powerful learning is a social activity. Everyone has talked about the power of group learning. And it seems to me that the effective technologies that we use are the ones that enable that learning to become social. Um, and the ones that aren't that effective are the ones that kind of isolate the individual. Um, and really, that's what I was, that's the, essentially the, the point that I'm making in the book is that we already kind of know how. We, we make powerful use of these technologies and it's how we learn socially when we're not in those kind of formal places. So what we all do when we're at home, and so got pointed this out, it's driven by a set of motivations that actually when you start to look at them I think our schools are really struggling with. If, you, if I just took one, there's a, a, a fantastic video, if you go on Vimeo, it's called This is Brighton. It's by a 13-year-old kid from Brighton called Caleb Yule. Um, and he, it's 45,000 uh, stop-motion animation photographs of Brighton on a typical day. He started off as a school project, but he actually wanted the world to see what he was doing. So he put it up on Vimeo, it went viral, and within a couple of days, he'd been offered five jobs. People had said this was fantastic work. Nobody knew he was a 13-year-old kid. And that's a really, really powerful motivation. And while that's going on, we've got schools that are confiscating mobile phones and actually denying kids the kind of public audience. So I think the challenge for schools is how can they open up and uh, the... Um, the Global Perspectives uh, presentation gives a, a, a good opportunity for that. How can schools open up uh, into what I call global learning commons when, in fact, what we've seen over the last 20 years is schools becoming learning enclosures? So that, I think, is a challenge for schools and teachers. Okay, thank you. Um, before we move on and ask for any more comments, would, would anyone like to make on the panel a response to the question that we had about teachers as translators and enthusiasts of learning? Clive? I don't know I was going to talk more about assessment, but I think yeah. the comment trust the teacher is just absolutely fundamental. Um, you know, we're, we're skilled, experienced people who know our pupils, who, who, who know how they learn, and... Um, I, for one, just did a little dance when they scrapped the um, NC levels for, for ICT because they were meaningless. And what, what's much more powerful is to be able to, to explain to a child, to a parent, um, to your head of department, um, how this person has learned and, 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 and how they've you know, gone from here to there. And so it doesn't have to be quantitative. Um, it can be qualitative. It can be badges. It can be... Um, comments on work, you know, it could be comments online, it can be peer assessment, but for, trust the teacher, just absolutely fundamental. Mm -hmm. 
And we almost never do, do we? Politicians, it's one of the things politicians say, isn't it? We trust teachers and we're interested in standards, not um, structures. But I'm afraid politicians feel comfortable with things like standards rather um, structures rather than standards. Would you like to say something about me? Yes, I'm not yeah. quite sure. Right, yes. I think um, a phrase I heard recently about the, the current reforms in education, it's um, initiative incongruence, which is a bit of a, a clumsy phrase, but um, it was put really well to Pearson event recently that the, the process ought to be curriculum assessment accountability, and we haven't got that in the right order. Those three things are still out of kilter. So assessment's been freed up, but the opportunity to look at in other contexts, like in the context of, of increasing use of technology-assisted learning, just it isn't taken. Um, it, it, as long as we've got that incongruence at the policy level and at the, 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 the politics level, then it's going to be very, very difficult for the sort of headway to be made, but, uh, but we all want to see. Okay. Do we have anybody, any further statements or questions from the this gentleman over there in white shirt? Um, uh, Nick Parry, I'm uh, head at Academy 21. We're a, an online school teachers, teachers, um, students who are out of school for various different reasons. Um, but what I want to ask is, is, is a wider thing about this collaborative and autonomous learning. Wonderful, fabulous thing. All schools should be doing this. It's amazing. What head is going to do that and still meet? the government requirement for the minimum number of A-stars to C's by the deadline for 16-year-olds. They may get there when they're 17 or 13 or 25, but they have to be there by 16, or they put another head in and call it special measures. To the panel. Right. Um, and... Uh I think that's a comment that in the Education Select, Select Committee we struggle with very often. We, we know... Question. Oh, yes. We know that um, the thing that makes a, de- a difference is good teachers and good leaders. But then we ask the question that I think Sagata said in the North East, what good leader is going to go into a school where 18 months later he's going to have Ofsted hand him his P45? So how do we make that, how do we make that happen? How do we get the best teachers and the best leaders into the most challenging schools. And I, I certainly li- I like to look at what is government policy and what are the drivers to make that policy happen. And I think, personally, I think there's a mismatch between that at the moment. And the, we, we struggle enormously as a select committee with this cliff edge of five A to Cs. And um, is that the right way to assess young people? Is it, you know, who decided it was five A to Cs? I, I can't find out anybody who said it's based on good evidence. It's just something that's been plucked out of the air, probably by people like, well, not by people like me, but by politicians in the past without anything to base it on. I don't know if anyone on the panel wants to make a comment on that. No? Apart from the fact that it is completely arbitrary, as, as a lot of things in education are, because you cannot do randomised controlled trials successfully, or it's very difficult to in education. So, yeah, plugged out the air, yeah. and now we're, we're following it, following it, following it, and, and, and the point is spot on, I think. Do you want to say something, Nick? Yes. Uh-huh. I don't have an answer. Can I also just yes. comment that um, some of the excellence that I see in school 
can't be assessed. There are no criteria that it matches. Mm-hmm. So I can't and however much students. we struggle, we still have not got a good measure of a child's progress rather than just raw scores. Um, it, it's just a comment, really. I think when I went to Twickenham, my, um, my, my mantra was that I had the Academy Challenge and the Kunskapskolen Challenge. Uh, the Kunskapskolen Challenge of trying to make a change and a difference to education, but against the context that I still had to improve the Academy Challenge, the 5A2C measure. And, and it's tough. Um, I think that's a tough balancing act that, um, you know, hopefully we've moved along, but, but isn't easy. Yeah. puts tremendous pressure on, on teachers and leaders, I think. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, I think when we started, David Bell said, it will take you time, you know, and I think you as a wise man, you know, what uh, really significant change doesn't happen overnight, uh, but, of, but of course politics and, and so forth doesn't have time. Uh, there's the Treasury cycle and, and, and pressure on everybody within the system to, to show improvement rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we, we at the short face know that sometimes uh, you can't rush it. You have to take it at the right pace. You have to take people at the right pace when you're, when you're involved in, in fairly radical change. Chair, before we get hung up on the United Kingdom, we are being watched uh, around the world. Our colleagues from Singapore have set up a a separate seminar deliberately to to feed off this. And you can see on the board we've got somebody from Jakarta uh, who has asked a very interesting point, uh, which is about whether the size of the pipe, whether Wi-Fi, and of course Sagasa's major work is done in India. So before we get hung up on 5A to C's, we do need to consider, we're we're thinking about the the sort of, is there enough technology available, we're going on how wonderful technology is, is there enough technology available? Uh, I think another question that came up before was um, uh, we're talking about uh, lots and lots of students in the UK without access to the internet apply that worldwide where you've got whole states. I mean, even in this country, the internet con- connectivity is going to be better than it is in Ghana, for instance. Um, and those, 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 they're facing similar challenges, uh, and perhaps Sagasa has something to say about how, how one deals with that. That hole in the wall, was that just Wi-Fi, and can you just do that everywhere? Yeah, well, a hole in the wall, of course, is 15 years ago, so the methods were different. I used to um, use VSATs, which are very expensive and uh, uh, and very poor in quality. So, uh, but I think the point about connectivity, uh, we can say one thing about connectivity. Uh, connectivity in any country or anywhere on the planet will only improve. It's not as though a 3G signal in some country will suddenly become 2G. That's not going to happen. So where there is none, I would like to believe that there will be some in a year, in three years or whatever. India being a good example. The internet penetration... uh, it didn't happen because of the government. The government tried their best, but still it's a big country and so on. Who did it? Mobile phones. Yeah. Everybody wanted a mobile phone. And once the mobile phones came, 2G came with it. And then 3G, then 4G, and, and that's the way it goes. So I don't think we do... Yes, you might need an interim solution in those places where you don't have the internet. Uh, which incidentally also connects with the earlier discussion where you were steering us off from Britain. But the thing is, 
you also need an interim solution. After all, you know, it's easy to say that the government's doing everything wrong. But we have to give the government some time. These are major, huge changes. So while there will be a period where we have to make friends with Ofsted, we have to make friends with GCSE. And, and uh, I'll tell you what, if you check uh, December 2012, an Ofsted report on, uh, on a school in County Durham, which says they're doing something funny with groups of children and single computers, but whatever it is they're doing, the children are reading a lot better than they used to. So it's not as though they, they won't acknowledge it if you actually demonstrate it. We've, uh, so in every country, this change will take time, and we have to go through an intermediate period where we don't blame each other. That's not going to help anybody, but we uh, help each other make the transition. Okay. Lord Putnam wants to speak. Thanks, Pat. I mean, I'll try and pull together two thoughts because I think they're important. And Nick put this very well uh, at, the, at the top of the show, I think. Um, the real danger of this discussion, and it goes on and on and on, is it becomes very quickly binary. As if somehow or another there's a battle going on between the utilization of technology and the and purest form of, t- of teaching and learning, which is an absurdity. I still find it mad that I have to, when talking about technology, have to stress the fact, I, yes, I do believe in literacy and numeracy. I have to say, because if I don't say that, someone in the audience will say, well, are you saying that literacy and numeracy aren't important anymore? So there's a real issue here. But goes back to politics, Pat, that interests you. In 1998, uh, David Blunkett commissioned a report from Ken Robinson on the use of the arts in education and what the role of the arts might be. Ken delivered a very good report from a remarkable uh, group of people. Uh, it took him two years, and I was there. I watched this happen. David couldn't or didn't feel he could implement anything really in the report, although some things have drifted into policy, because it appeared as though it were challenging the primacy of literacy and numeracy. And there's such an emphasis at that point by our, our Labour government on literacy and numeracy that somehow to introduce anything else into that debate was diluting it. So Ken's uh, report was shelved. Ken quite sensibly took himself off to LA, and it's important today. To Ken's key um, the TED Talk will today go through 25 million hits. So it's not a question that Ken was wrong or there's a lack of interest in what Ken said. It's that we haven't reconciled ourselves to implementing the core things that Ken, Stephen Heppel and others have been saying for 15, almost 20 years in within our own internal debate about education. And that's not self-promotion. Last night, um, and it's literature, a TED Talk of mine went up. It's a talk I've given in Britain for a long time. I've slept around the country any number of times about the fragility of democracy. Okay, And I've probably spoken maybe over the last few years to 1,000 people, 1,500 people. As of uh, walking in here earlier, 136,000 people have downloaded that talk. Now, if that doesn't tell you that technology is a powerful way of getting ideas out and getting discussion going, because technology democracy, believe me, is fragile. Uh, the fact that I know, long, I don't feel any longer that I've got to get on a train down to Bristol or get up to the northeast in order to have a talk to 300 or maybe probably actually 50 interested people. This is phenomenal. And we're not, here's my point, we're not using it properly because we don't fully trust it. And we're very neurotic and defensive about the way in which somehow or other it may offend against our secret um, belief in what teaching and learning are. Mm. Right. 
I'm going to take Russell, and then is there anyone else? Right, there's a man at the back. So, so, so I just want to make a, a, a couple of points, really. I, th- I think the, the first is that uh, the mobile phone has become the computing platform of the world, and therefore is is the route for uh, facilitating. Thank you uh, for facilitating uh, some of these things. And the advantage of mobile technology is you can just get a shipping container and drop it in the middle of the desert and put solar panels on the roof, and you have connectivity. It's it's much much easier to do than stringing telephone wires everywhere. So I do a lot of work in rural Africa, and most people there have really good connectivity. And they might not have very much else, but they do have a SIM card. Um, so, so I think I think that that is is really important. The second thing is is I do think there is also a false tension, and I kind of worry when people talk about one thing or other or putting technology in as a solution. Technology is never a solution. Technology is a facilitator, and as our technology improves, it improves the sorts of things it can facilitate and extends the range and the reach of stuff. But you can't just drop it in and assume it will work. And most of the failures that we see in education are because people think that technology is the answer, and it just isn't. Right. Hi, I'm Simon Barrable. I'm Deputy Principal at Portsmouth College. I, I take on board what the gentleman uh, said over here about the, the pressures that, that people are under and that leaders in education are under to, to, to hit targets, you know, financial pressures, pressures on results of students. But, I, but having sat here all morning today, I just feel that people that have got leadership roles in education have just got to be brave. They've got to be courageous. They've got to take a bit of a punt. They've got to do some, some things differently. I think we've got an example on the panel there of the, you know, the principal at Twickenham is somebody who has been brave enough, I think, to try and do something differently. And yes, I agree with you, it takes a little bit of time, and we need to be given time to do that. But but we, we need to embrace these uh, these changes, and people that have got leadership roles need to need to drive them forward. I feel in conjunction with with teachers for for sure. I don't I don't see that this 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 tension as a as a realistic one actually. I think we've got time for one more one more question or statement. The lady at the front here. Shall we just hand this lady here? Uh, Carrie Herbert, Chief Executive of Red Balloon Learner Centres. I want to say today I've been up and down and up and down as people have said, this is the, you know, this is... And a lot of people keep coming back to the point that it is the learner who has the power and we must provide the learner with every tool to learn. And I see technology as absolutely that. And sometimes, and I hear the teachers, I am a teacher, teachers get in the way of learning. And I want to say to the kids, this is the technology, these are the learning sources, this is what you can find out about. And put more holes in walls and put more things in Africa with the SIM cards on and get kids inspired to learn. And I know as a, a, a child who failed the education system in England, my 11 plus, 12 plus, I can just beat David with five O levels. School failed me and it wasn't till I was 28 that I became a learner. And once I got hold of it, I flew. People stopped me learning, and I want to give the children in England today and the world the opportunity to learn. Let's put the power back for the learners. Okay. Right. Thank you.
And that is a really great finish, I think. Thank you very much. Can we thank Pat Glass MP very much for doing a very tough job of chairing? Thank you, Pat. Quite, quite difficult to keep it going. Um, I would like to thank, obviously, all of our speakers today. If you would give them a round of applause. Thank you for coming, and thank everybody who is watching online and the people that sent us in. I hope you've been noticing our Twitter wall and uh, email wall with interesting and powerful, challenging questions coming through there and statements. Um, all of this goes up online. It is, of course, live at the moment, but it all goes up online on the, on the Cambridge Assessment website, uh, cambridgeassessment.org.uk. And what I would say is continue the conversation. You know, we have not gone very far today. We've, 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 I think we started the plinth of what could be a good statue. Um, keep it going. We're going to ask our uh, contributors today. They don't know this yet, so I'm about to do it. Ask them to drop in from time to time to review what people have said um, and perhaps add their own comments on, because this event is merely a stopping point on what is actually a very long journey, and I think we've seen several different routes uh, on that journey. So stay for lunch, we have lunch outside in the foyer, continue the conversation verbally, continue it online later on, and thank you very much for coming. Goodbye. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.